0: Blog Talk
1: Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg.
0: And I'm Mary Alice Long.
1: You can find us online and be notified of future shows at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archive submissions on iTunes. Our guests today on Creativity and Play are Michael Conforti and Laura Lee Scott Conforti. Michael is a Jungian analyst, founder and director of the Assisi Institute, and author of Field, Form, and Fate, Patterns in Mind, Nature, and Psyche, among other publications. And Laura Lee is the executive director of the Assisi Institute, as well as a producer, writer, and lecturer. As an award-winning choreographer, her most recent work is Soul Cry, which tells the story, the true story, of a human trafficking victim as reported by the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Nicholas Kristoff in his, uh, I think it's a book, Half the Sky. Uh, The Assisi Institute is an educational center dedicated to the study and application of archetypal pattern analysis, which we'll talk more about. Plus, we'll explore how to understand and tap into the creative unconscious how creativity can be better understood from an interdisciplinary perspective, and the role that archetypes play in creativity. Michael and Laura Lee, welcome to Creativity in Play.
2: Oh, It's a pleasure. Thank, Thank you so you. much,
1: both of you. So I, I want to start off with the uh, your organization, and um, you're based in New England, but it's called the CC Institute, and I want to ask you why it is called that. And uh, as we said in the um, introduction that the uh, organization focuses on archetypal pattern analysis. What is that?
2: Oh, Thank you. I'll, I'll begin because I started this about 30 years ago when I made my pilgrimage to Italy. I went to go visit my family in Sicily, and I was also going to Assisi, Italy, which has always been a, a place of reverence for me. And I went there, and I said, my God, there's something so powerful about this environment. I want to come back someday and do a program here based on the confluence of matter and spirit. And what's interesting is those weren't they weren't even my words. That's not the way I talked. I was interested in conferencing. Um, so something literally came over me. And we began what has now been a long tradition of doing programming every summer in Assisi Italy. And we brought together from the beginning physicists, jungian analysts, theologians, artists, writers, musicians, dancers, whatever. And we looked at the different ways archetypal influences really influence, and structure what we do in life. And it's been a tremendous success. So, Assisi, Italy, and Assisi, because, number one, St. Francis, and Francis's life was all about matter and spirit. I mean, it was a struggle for him. I mean, he wanted to beat down matter in so many ways because he felt matter would tie him, away, would bring him away from spirit. But we tried to show where there really is a confluence of rivers between the two. So that's why Assisi.
1: And, and a little more on the archetypal pattern analysis, what does that mean to the lay person?
2: Well,
0: <clears throat>
2: every, every initiative we're involved in in life is something that's a primordial has a primordial root. Making a home, you know, Laurel and I, we're getting ready to move. I mean, from the beginning of time, we've had groups that were migratory, everything from animals to people. And people would pick up and go to a new place and make a home animals that had to make important shifts in their life or people that you know many of us going through midlife and beyond you're going from fifty to sixty years old or those of us that are having our kids go from fifteen years old to twenty years old twenty years old graduating college going into service and you begin to realize all of these transition and portals are universal activities and it was the beauty of young and, and the elders way before him the mystics the talmudic scholars christian scholars that understood that these were thresholds that every individual will cross at some point and information about how to do those are embedded in the human psyche, not to constrain us but to orient us. Thus, we look at archetypal patterns. And we do it in educational settings. I've worked in governmental systems. I've worked with the ambassador from Venezuela on international peace efforts. I've worked now on probably three or four movies as a script consultant looking at archetypal patterns in the cinema. Laura Lee's doing a lot of work, should speak herself, of course, in a minute, looking at universal patterns in dance, universal patterns in movement, universal patterns in this atrocity of the sex trade. So again, it's, it's realizing that human will, while it's absolutely necessary, is often eclipsed by other forces that take over life. And that's tough for a lot of people to realize because we all want to be the, you know, masters of our own home, masters of our own destiny. Well, guess what? There's somebody else driving us a lot of the time. Uh-huh. So that's a, a thumbnail sketch of what people ought to look at when you think about archetypal patterns. You know, going to a church, going to a synagogue. You know, it's going to something that will change you in some ways, will affect you. Going to a beautiful piece of, going to an opera being moved by a gorgeous piece of dance and you move by something that's bigger than the dancers themselves bigger than the the singers themselves and it's that place whether you want to call it the the psychoidal field whether you call it the archetypal field whether you want to call it god whether you want to call it transcendent the numinous the all words to describe the generative matrix out of which all this all the phenomena all of matter all of experiences arises and we're trying to articulate much in the same way Jung did, and again the scholars before him. You know, what are these influencing pieces of life?
0: Thank you, Michael. So You're one, of the thing, one of the things I admire about uh, Susi Institute and your work um, is the interdisciplinary study, bringing people of all kinds of persuasions into the conversation, and so. Loyalie, I know that you are, you've started this uh, Creative Unconscious program within CC Institute, and I wonder, um, well, I wonder about it, what is it, and what is the Creative Unconscious, and what is the program about, and um, would you tell us a, a little bit about the uh, people who are going to be part of that? And with the flavor of how interdisciplinary it is because it it's it's really what's really great
3: thank you uh, yeah this is a brand new program that we've started um at a c c and there was a there was a lot that led into actually uh the impetus for this uh for this course initially um you know, back in the 1950s, the president of the American Psychological Association uh, threw, kind of threw down the gauntlet to the psychological community and issued a challenge um, and basically said, you know, uh, psychology has delved into all these different uh, issues and is looking at all these different areas, but the creative seems to be the one area that we fear to tread. And that's sparked off uh, an interest, not just in the psychological community, but in a lot of areas, of an interest in the creative. Um, but it's interesting because when you read even the most contemporary uh, scholars and researchers in creativity, whether that's Sheik Menzali or Gardner or Sawyer, what, what you begin to find out is that we are still debating the same argument with regards to the creative that was debated thousands of years ago by a couple of guys named Aristotle and Plato. And basically that argument- They're
2: on the faculty, by the way.
3: Yeah, they're not on the faculty. Thank you.
2: I sound like I'm
1: listening um, to myself right now, but go
3: on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, Aristotle and Plato came from two different schools of thought, and we don't have time in this. You know, you have to sign up for the course. I'm trying not. To, I'm trying to give you the Reader's Digest version here, but basically, what it breaks down to is, is creativity uh, a possession or is it a process? And I'm I'm oversimplifying for uh, the purposes of this call, um, but. Uh, do we view the creative process as, you know, literally an autonomous force that somehow possesses uh, an individual or a person, regardless in how that creative uh, creativity is being channeled? Or is it more of a neurological process, and you're seeing a lot of researchers out there delving into and using MRI technology, Um, to try and give us a breakdown of the creative. And so people tend to align themselves pretty passionately along one or the other of those two schools of thought. And my frustration in, in, you know, I'm someone who's worked in in the creative field all my life. Um, I grew up in a dance studio. My daughter's a third-generation dancer. I've got a background in theater and arts. I've also got a background in business. Um, and now bringing the psychological, and in particular uh, Jungian psychology, I think, is, does the best job of providing a container and a framework for truly being able to understand the creative. And in order to understand the creative, you have to look at it from an interdisciplinary perspective. You can't simply, it refuses, and that's one of the things I love about the creative, it refuses to be pinned down. Uh, under a microscope. It really demands that we broaden our definition uh, of it. And so in order to really take an archetypal approach to it and really work with it in a way that I think breaks some of the paradigmatic ways that we have historically tried to isolate creativity, it necessitated an interdisciplinary approach. And that is something that Michael's work in the legacy of the Assisi Institute uh, has – you know, they were one of the pioneers in an inter- interdisciplinary approach to some of these. So that was, the, that was the catalyst. That was where we started, and that's where I started in terms of how do we want to look at the creative, and I knew that we needed to look at it from a lot of different areas. So I started reaching out to people like, uh, you know, Rick Tarnas and uh, Thomas Moore And Susan Rowland and Harry Hudson, when you look at the faculty for this, you'll see that they're coming from, they are all uh, experts in their own disciplines, but those disciplines um, come from a a number of different areas.
0: And I know those people to be playful, because my
3: belief is that we,
0: to be creative, we, the ante room is play, and the playful psyche has to be there. I notice that your program has... Four different areas, the creative unconscious, but um, which is um, one part besides archetypal patterns is personality and trauma and transformation and sociocultural, which are all like huge areas of creativity. <laughs> I wonder, could you uh, talk about... Um, Well, to give us a little bit to bite on here, could you talk about one of your projects with your dance company or something where you're entering into the um, community community change, social change realm with the arts and creativity and how that looks through your
3: perspective? Thank you. Thank you for asking that question. That is one of my great uh, passions right now. is really recognizing that creativity is not something that should just be relegated at the end of the school hallway and allocated to whatever budgetary funds are left after everything else that's more important has been funded. But that creativity, and this is speaking, and it's really, it's really Michael's work on patterns that helped me um, get some clarity around this and, and delve more deeply into this, um, what we see historically and archetypally is when the odds are monumentally stacked against someone, um, think, think your classic, uh, whether it's a David and Goliath uh, tale or whatever, it is the creative that has the momentum and the power and the force to even the deck. And, and so when we're dealing with profound issues of social injustice, and right now I've been very involved um, in working around the issue of the, the sex trafficking of children. And that's a $32 billion uh, a year industry. That's six times more than Nike, Google, and Starbucks make combined. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's monumentally overwhelming. and. When I set out to, and that's a long story that I'm abbreviating and won't go into and how I got involved in that, but when I put a piece of uh, choreographic dance theater on stage for the first time that actually told a story, a true story, um, based, as you said in the introduction, on a a story reported by Nick Kristoff in his book Half the Sky, I had no idea what kind of a response that would get. Um, And the response that that work has been getting um, has is what has fueled my delving more deeply into the power of the creative for transformation, both personal transformation, um, each of us individually, and transformation in the collective um, and bringing things into collective consciousness that maybe we have been um, unaware of or afraid uh, of really going there. When we seek a creative communication of that, that creativity has the ability to transcend simply an analytical approach and really engage what Jung and von Franz talked about and dealt with. Jung and, and von Franz talked about working in metaphors. And, and their reasoning for working in metaphors was because um, it engaged an individual. Metaphors and story have the power to engage us beyond more than simply our intellect, and when we're dealing with an issue like the sex trafficking of children, when we're dealing with issues of such profound injustice, if we're going to catalyze change and transformation, um, then we need, we need a vehicle that will allow us to go far beyond simply an intellectual analysis of that. Um, and so when we've been putting this production uh, on stage, I mean, the, you know, the response has been pierced overwhelmingly, regardless of the audience. And we've done it at um, abolitionist rallies in Washington, D.C. We've brought it to colleges and universities. We've brought it to uh, the Rhode Island family court system. And the response has been the same. The initial response is tears. And I think that is a beautiful place to begin and to start. Thank you. I love your passion.
0: It's wonderful.
1: Michael, um You you both described um, several different aspects of how you're coming at creativity from a variety of of disciplines and backgrounds, which, uh, as Mary Alice and I were saying before we uh, went on the air, that we both very much uh, engage that kind of thinking in our own work individually and and together, and looking at all of those different approaches, what do you see the biggest blocks being to... Getting in the way that that, that um, kind of get in the way of us seeing and expressing our ourselves in a creative way. And and how does your particular work to help people overcome those blocks?
2: Well, it's a great question because I've I've really changed my approach. I've been in practice for 30 years. I taught psychopathology. I taught universities, doctoral programs, and all that. And and you know, like a lot of clinicians, I would look at issues in pathology and all that. I think, Steve, what you're bringing up right now has become the major focus of my work, which is what I think we struggle with is a terror. I think it's a terror of submission and supplication to something greater than ourselves. This is where I think, again, Jung and and the elders were really on top of this issue beautifully. And I think the, the greatest fear is when we allow ourselves to submit to something greater than ourselves. You know whether it's a moment of allowing yourself to rest in, in your lover's arms and say I, I feel comfortable and I trust this is going to be okay, letting a mentor who you have reason to believe they can help you, letting them have some important role in your life, letting the dreams that come in your life say oh, this is not what I think, but maybe the dreams come to reorient you in some way. It's the need to glorify and totemize the ego. That I think is the greatest hindrance to opening up to the to the creative, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, it's terrifying when you let go of the ego stance, and so much of the work. Of, this is where I think Jung's work was absolutely brilliant. His his red book is really a testament to your question is really a beautiful and poetic and lyrical way of responding to your question he went into that underworld with no maps i mean we have a little more maps today you know yeah we have some kind of gps system that they never had back then i mean even though it's still uncharted territory he went in to have no idea what the heck he was doing and he encountered he had direct encounter with these forces and that's why he, was, he and many people understood the difference between religion and spirituality, is direct experience of the numinous. He was, he was terrified. He was terrified. He was ecstatic. All of the things based on what he experienced, and he left his ego at the door. And I know that's a lot easier said than done. I don't mean that in a Hallmark greeting card kind of way, but it's terrifying when one says, you know what, there is something greater. How do I open up to that, and what do I need to let go of? And, again, I think the issue is it's a terror, a huge terror that comes when anybody gets to that threshold point.
1: What would an example be of how you might guide somebody into those questions or that fear for themselves in one of your workshops or programs?
2: Well, when would be, let's say, somebody who's been involved in affairs? Like we see a lot of it in culture today, having an extramarital affair. If, they, if you ask them, look, what have you let go of this? What is it that's really beckoning to you? That you are finding satiation when you do whatever you do you know, behind closed doors. That's not the issue, what goes on behind closed doors. It's, it's a metaphor for something. Can you open up to whatever that direct experience is that feels so powerful that you are potentially losing everything in your life to do this? And I've seen some people realize, my God, there's something calling me to a different way of life that they literalized. So if you put the brakes on, you know, put the brakes on the enactment, break the, put the brakes on the sin of literalism and ask, and this was, again, one of Jung's greatest contributions, he said, look at the symbolic. So if you ask somebody, what is a symbolic activity? You know, so whether it's somebody also going to church on a regular basis, three, four times a week or a day. Say, what is it that you're involved in that you that you think it's about going to church what are you really entering and I find it's this translation of archetypal processes that opens the door for people and it seems like it's something that's very workable because if you do it in a way that uses this kind of language say what do you really enter when you enter that church four times a day what do you really enter when you enter the AA thing five times a week or eight times a week what do you enter when you go into your, your mistress's or your, your boyfriend's uh, place and you take that weekend away with them or whatever? Where, where are you really going? And, and if, the, if the person asking that question, the mentor, the analyst, the archetypal pattern analyst is asking that question from a sincere place with no gimmicks and no strategies, that need to understand and that hunger to understand is going to be conveyed in a very deep way. And that builds a bridge for people.
0: Okay. So, Michael and Laura Lee, um there's so many, so many questions that I have for you about the creative unconscious and 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 um, the program, and we're not going to get to all of them, unfortunately, today. But I do have a kind of a big question for both of you, um, and that is, what what's your vision for your work and for this program, the creative unconscious, for individuals and for the collective. If you could, both speak to that. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are you hoping?
3: That's a huge question. <laughs> individual and the collective. Let me <laughs> let me start with the individual piece of it. And and here's what we're seeing already. I mean, we've we've already capped this course. This ca- this course capped out in two weeks, which we we had no idea when we put it out there what that response would be. And one of the things this this course is based on a transformative learning model. Um, because that's just one of my convictions. If you're going to work with the creative, then it cannot simply be uh, dealing with the theoretical and the, and the neuroscience part of it. And a transformative learning model I felt really created uh, one of the couple of the keys that go into that transformative learning model are um, creating a community that is first of all relational, second of all has time for reflection. And thirdly, probably the third pillar, is creating a framework where individuals can create their own contextualized meaning. And then the challenge became, how do you do that in a webinar with students from around the country and around the world? Um, how do you make it relational? So one of the first pieces that I did was to ask all of the students to submit a picture of themselves, and I was careful not to say a headshot because, you know, my only criteria was you have to be in the picture somewhere. I wanted the I wanted to see what crea. I don't care if you're in a tree, I don't care if you're in a raft, <laughs> I don't care if it's your left foot, but I wanted to see what kind of creativity emerged just from that that piece of it. And then the second piece was asking uh, students to to share what is it that is drawing you to this course because. Students who were going to be a part of this were so emphatic about, I have to be a part of this. It was, it was, I've never experienced anything like it. It was like, I am being called to be a part of this program and this course. And what began to emerge as they sent in their descriptions was that for a lot of them, there was a fear, just exactly what Michael was talking about, there is a huge shadow size the creative. And a lot of them verbalize that fear, I've been afraid to do this up until now. Um, and and a couple of them put it like this, I finally have permission to prioritize being creative. Um, and so I guess my goal for, for the students as individuals is to get over that fear, to integrate it, to work through it. And for each of them to finally give themselves permission to tap into and express this creativity, which, as we know, can be a tremendously healing force in our lives, both as individuals and and as a collective. And and as for the collective, that's that's a much longer conversation. That's a much, you know, that's an, an equally large question. I want to save time for Michael to respond because I think for the collective and for our culture in particular. Um, We have tried to put the creative in a straitjacket. We've tried to exploit it. And I think what we're beginning to see emerging is recognizing the tremendous power and momentum of the, the creative to affect change, especially around issues of injustice.
2: Well, I think the piece I'll add is a very simple piece which is to say that if this helps all of us in some way to listen to some greater voice that's really trying to move our lives in some profound way, then we've done a hell of a great job. I mean, that's, what I, that's my goal as an analyst. It's my goal as a parent, as a husband, as a friend. You know, not that I do for people, you know, it's not the point, but it, when people come to me in therapy, for my son, I, I try to show him there's a big world out there. And interesting, Mary Alice, actually, this came to me when I was teaching in Seattle one weekend at Antioch, and the woman that ran the local newspaper there, she said, you know, Dr. Conforti, could you tell me, what, what's what's the message here? Well, what's the big picture of what you're giving a talk about? And I said, well, let me get back to you after the lecture, and I had a chance to think about it. And I said, the big picture is this, that there is a world so much bigger than anything we ever imagined. And like Laura Lee said, you know, we do straightjacket ourselves, and you know We're paying too much of a price for this, whether in politics today, the atrocities that go on, in, in world politics, American politics, whether in the economy and whether in personal lives. I mean, how many times do you look at people and you see the deadness comes in? And I'll just share one little story. A colleague and a wonderful woman named Dr. Diane Powell, some of you, may, you probably know her work. She's one of the leaders in uh, parapsychology. But anyway, she told us a story that she was working with um, child soldiers from Sierra Leone and other parts of the, of the country and other parts of the world. And they came, and you know, people that have been through these kind of atrocities, they become soldiers at age 6 and 7 and 9 years old, and, and they're trained to kill and disembowel at this age. Anyway, she said one of the people came to her, and she'll never forget it. And She shared this, this story uh, publicly so I can share it. She said one of the people came to her and said, you have something alive in your eyes. That gives me hope. You've seen something good and meaningful. I want to believe I can have something like that. And I remember I kept misinterpreting the story. We, I had her on a radio show as well one day, and I said, oh, so you saw something alive in their eyes. She said, no, Michael, that's not the point. They saw something in my eyes. And, you know, every once in a while we're graced by meeting somebody that you know they've seen something. And they have that passion, and they have that love of, of this other life. And it was Rabbi Hesher that made a beautiful comment when he said, he was asked, I think, seven days before he passed away, the interviewer said, what would you tell the youth of today? And he said, I would tell them, live their life as though it's a work of art. And, you know, these are the pieces that I hope to convey in what we're doing. And, you know, I give Loralee total credit for the program she put on. This was her baby all the way through. And, yes, some of it's built on what we've been doing and and the patterning and archetypal pattern analysis that I've built for the past 30 years, so we're all building on some wonderful shoulders here. But I think this is the big piece in terms of what we hope to accomplish, that say, look, look to some greater greater thing that can influence our lives. Get away from your own subjective frame of reference. It ain't enough. <laughs> you know? That's pretty simple, well, I think, right? <laughs> yep.
1: Well, Michael and Loralee, 30 minutes goes awfully fast, and we are at the <laughs> end of our 30 minutes. I want to thank you very much for joining us on Creativity in Play. As, as Mariella said, there's so much we to talk about, and I hope we do it again. And I personally am looking forward to uh, meeting you in person when you do move to Kitsoon. Uh, and uh, we want to, again, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Michael Conforti is the founder and director of the Assisi Institute, and Laura Lee Scott Conforti is the executive director of the Assisi Institute. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste and you can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and sign up to be notified about coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find creativity on play on twitter, facebook and itunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve
0: Dolberg, and I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you Loralee and Michael for being with us oh, today. Yeah.
2: Our pleasure. Thank Thank you. And
0: anytime, call us. We'll be there. All right. Thank Thank you. you Thank you, everybody.
2: Yep. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.